0: Hey, this is Andrew. You're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast, and we're in the middle of this series through the book of Revelation. This was a message I preached uh, very recently that was supposed to be a survey through chapters 13 and 14, but I really only made it through chapter 13 and to be totally honest and totally vulnerable and totally transparent with you as you're listening to this wherever you are thanks for joining in um we i don't feel amazing about how i communicated in different parts of this message and especially as it relates to uh political realities uh, explaining and expressing sort of what was going on uh, with the beasts and the dragon and their connection to state and religion and some of these different ideas are not uh, super comfortable honestly for me to talk about and so I, um, I didn't really use the precision that I would have liked to have so what I want to do is uh, after you listen through the message I am going to just record a second part of this podcast and explain in more detail, hopefully in a helpful way, what I meant to say or what I meant by certain things that I said. So uh, I'll leave you to listen to this. I'm asking you and Jesus for grace, and um, I'm presenting this to you in humility and in vulnerability and I'm just gonna pray, Holy Spirit, would you um, use even my inadequacies in in this message and in my humanity and how I communicated, would you still uh, work powerfully in our hearts and minds as we hear this? Would you cover this with your grace and um, Yeah, teach us how to follow you and follow the way of the Lamb in the days we're living in. Amen. All right, so without further ado, uh, check out this message through chapter 13 and then continue listening uh, because I'm going to explain a bunch of stuff afterward. Len and Michelle Vanderweer are going to read this morning. I'll give you this, Michelle. And uh, um, they have... Uh, are fairly new to our, Is it been at one year yet? Or it's close to, yeah. They've moved from Montreal area here and have family and friends that are connected into our church here and are uh, a great and amazing family. Very artistic family uh, on many levels, yes. <laughs> but uh, they are gonna read from chapters um, 13 and 14 today. So if you have your uh, scripture journal, you can pull it out. If you want to look at it on the screen that's working today, you can uh, look at it over there. And like always, this scripture was meant to be heard in, uh, in this kind of public setting. And so if you want to just close your eyes and listen to it, the point is that it is very graphic imaginatively. And that's precisely the point of this. And so if you want to listen and allow God to kind of take your imagination to some wonderful places, you can do that too. But I will pass it over to you guys.
1: And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads, with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, And all who dwell on the earth who will worship it. Everyone whose name was not, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed.
2: Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel, I'm just going to put this down, I'm shaking. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress, of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia.
0: Amen. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Let's stand together. Yeah, I'll grab that. And we're just going to pray over this Jesus, we uh, bring ourselves under your word. And our heart, our goal is to be shaped and formed by it. Uh, Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and be the one who brings teaching and counsel, who brings conviction. I very readily acknowledge my wisdom is insufficient my understanding, is completely inadequate to fully express your heart through these passages. And so we need you, Spirit of God, to come and be the one who brings truth, who illuminates uh, the very depths of our beings to the reality of the kingdom of God. We love you, Jesus. We submit to you and to your teaching. In your name, amen. Okay, so like I said, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of strange things. Um, Just a couple of uh, words to preface before we really uh, dive in. Again, um, if you've been with us, you know this, but this is an overview. This is a survey. Uh, We're not going through this verse by verse. These two chapters alone would take weeks to go through verse by verse. So this is just a survey of some of the major themes and ideas that are presented, and um, just so you know, kind of the overarching thought here, these chapters are deep, heavy discipleship. These are about worship. Who do you worship? Where is your attention? Are you following the way of the lamb, or are you following the way of the dragon? These, These are the questions that are being asked in here. This is about worship. This is about faithful endurance. This is so deeply practical for us today. Uh, In the midst of like everything that John is talking about here, we need to ask these questions and have these in the back of our mind. Who do I worship? And will I be faithful to the way of the Lamb? If those two questions are yes then John's exhortation here is to be patient in persevering, to have endurance in the face of everything that is going to confront the way of Jesus in your life. That's the overarching kind of idea going on here. This is about discipleship. This is about following Jesus. If at the end of this, your primary concern is what is 666, then you've missed the point of these two chapters. We'll get into that in hour two of today's talk. I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> um, Alex did a great job last week uh, unpacking chapter 12. And again, um, uh, going back to week one, these uh, these chapters, these symbols, dragons, beasts, uh, you know, uh, women clothed in the sun and giving birth and all of these kind of strange and weird things, they're meant to be that way. This is meant to evoke emotion in us. Anybody who's told you that God is opposed to emotion doesn't understand that he actually gave it to you in the first place. This is is precisely meant to bypass your intellect and shoot to your heart. That's the, the whole purpose of the way that revelation is laid out. It's meant to evoke our imagination and emotion. It's meant to hit us at a heart and gut level. John is not expressing things here that could be better said by intellectualizing them. He's presenting a vision for the reality of life that is meant to hit you. It's meant to stir you. It's meant to trouble you. It's meant to to cause you to wonder and question. It's meant to draw your attention to Jesus. That's the whole point of this. So as we're working through these passages, I want you to allow your imagination to actually fully engage in what Jesus is trying to bring out for us here. It's not that we could just say it better with different words. These are meant to stir you. They're meant to to challenge us in many ways. This chapter 13 is obviously coming on the heels of chapter 12. Those two are close to each other numerically. But also, in chapter 12, we saw the Advent story, right? Chapter 12 is about the birth of Jesus. We thought about preaching from it this Christmas, and uh, I... I was thinking about it, you know, like, because that is literally the Advent story is chapter 12. And then I got COVID like on Christmas Eve and Brenda had to speak and she said, I am not preaching on Revelation 12 for Christmas, just so you know. So we let that one go. But that chapter 12 is the upstairs view. Remember, uh, Revelation is constantly switching between upstairs, heavenly, spiritual, and downstairs, the things of the earth. So chapter 12 is the upstairs reality of what was happening at the birth of Jesus, that this birth of Jesus in an insignificant, small little town in the middle of the Middle East. Nobody knew what was going on around as Mary and Joseph were there, that in the middle of this quiet little moment that nobody saw that was not on the radar for anybody. There was a great war going on in heaven. And now chapter 13 and 14 are gonna bring us back down to the earth and we're going to see how this war in heaven is now played out in front of all of us. How we're all a part of this cosmic battle that's going on. Because this dragon we learned about in chapter 12 He's angry and upset. He knows his time is limited, but he's lashing out and he's thrashing around and he's using these two beasts that come up in in 13 and 14 to be his mechanism for opposing the purposes of God on the earth today. These two beasts, let's just pick it up here. In chapter 13, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Again, The sea, uh, we have to understand from a biblical context, the sea represented evil, chaos, and everything demonic that opposes the kingdom of God. And so we see this beast rising up out of the sea, rising up out of that place of chaos and evil and destruction and dysfunction. And that beast has uh, 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horn and blasphemous names on its head the beast i saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bear's its mouth was like a lion's mouth and so the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority so this beast i'm not going to go into this is a composite is a is a composite of what daniel saw in daniel chapter 7 So Daniel saw four beasts in Daniel chapter seven that represented um, these kingdoms of the earth that were going to take place, these empires on the earth that were going to take place. This beast here that John is seeing is a composite of all four of those. And what John wants us to see is what is animating this beast. This beast represents kingdoms and governments that stand opposed to the purposes and plans of God. That's what the beast represents. So what John is doing by making this composite, he's saying, look, every kingdom that's risen and fallen that has opposed to the rule of God on the earth has been driven by Satan, has been animated and empowered and given authority by the dragon. So it's not that we're to kind of isolate just one or the other or try and kind of through, you know, fancy numerical systems try and establish, well, who's what and when and all of that. What John is trying to to convey to us in what he's seeing here is that the dragon all through history has been influencing governments and kingdoms and Caesars and lords and everything else, that there are structures on the earth that stand opposed to the purposes of God. And Satan influences those structures on the earth to undermine the way of the lamb, and the way of the kingdom of God. And so this first beast is a composite of Daniel 7. What we see here between chapters 12, 13, and 14 is we see that Satan always, all he can do, and he does it very well, is he mimics God. So we see with the dragon beast one and beast two, an unholy trinity that is trying to mimic God's triuneness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see here an unholy trinity that's mimicking for the purpose, the very purpose of tricking us of lulling us into sleep, of, of baiting and switching for us so that we actually, without even know it, knowing it, become people who follow the way of the dragon because we get uh, disoriented and confused because it looks so much like the way of Jesus. We're gonna dive into that. And this is where we see in governments in empires and kingdoms all on the earth. It's not that the dragon comes in and just lays all of his cards on the deck and has this grotesque, evil, you know, uh, abhorrent kind of system of rule. It looks very godly at times. It looks very right at times. And this is what John is kind of drawing out for us, you have to understand then, more than understanding what's happening on a government level, you have to understand the heart of Jesus and the way of the Lamb. If you talk to any expert uh, counterfeit sort of person who studies counterfeit currency and different counterfeit things, they'll tell you they don't study all of the thousands of different counterfeits, they study the original so that when the original is sitting with a counterfeit, they can see the very subtle contrasts and discrepancies. And more than anything, what I, what I want you to walk away with as we're working through this, uh, what I want you to kind of have in the back of your mind is do I know the real thing so intimately that I can spot the deception of the dragon? That even when things look right, or feel right, or sound right, I'm able to wisely discern, is this coming from the heart of God or the heart of the dragon? These beasts are um, set in a present time reality. So specifically in chapter 13 with these two beasts, in chapter 14, we get into the very end reality, but these two beasts are a description of what is taking place even now. It was taking place when John wrote this in around 96 AD, but it's taking place now. These beasts are working and active and influencing even now. This is not about some time in the future, This is about how the kingdom of darkness operates in the present and how we can discern and understand and find our way through. So he's coming out of the sea, which represents evil and chaos, demonic power that opposes God. In here, we have a ton of Old Testament imagery. I've already mentioned uh, Daniel seven. But specifically, this first beast, if you line it up with so many um, areas of Old Testament imagery, this first beast is a representation of evil kingdoms that persecute God's people. You can look in Scripture, often Egypt is used to characterize this reality Psalm 79 or 4, because I can't read my own writing, one of those two. 13 or 14, you can look it up. If you look up both, it's fine. Nothing's, it's not going to harm you. But this beast, this beast is an earthly minion of the dragon that we read about in chapter 12. And this beast working through kingdoms and empire and governmental structures on the earth is exercising as a primary agent of the kingdom of darkness of Satan is exercising influence on the earth. So again, chapter 12, we have this cosmic war in heaven. Chapter 13 now, we see how this war is being played out on the earth. Ten horns, seven heads. Uh, Pastor Alex covered some of this. Again, those are symbols of completeness. And they uh, characterize the oppressive power of the enemy of God. Notice, though, that the dragon from 12 had diadems, and those diadems were on his head, but the diadems are in a different spot on this beast, meaning to say that this beast is not operating out of his own power and authority. He's operating with power that's been given to it by Satan, by the dragon. He doesn't have power of his own to operate. He's taking power that is being given to him by the dragon, And he's leveraging that and using that. So this 10 and seven is a symbol for completeness, a complete oppressive power that has worldwide effect. That's really important here. This beast is not relegated to one continent or geographical area. He is expressing the power and the will of the dragon all over the earth. All through time in history, he's using empires and monarchs and governments at his pleasure to express the, the kingdom reality of the dragon in opposition to the reality of Jesus. That's how you can understand these ten horns and seven heads and diadems and all these things. Those diadems, like Alex mentioned, are a symbol of authority, and again what Paul not Paul what John is expressing here is that this dragon he's operating in authority but it's a false authority because it's the lamb who actually has ultimate authority over every nation tribe and tongue but this beast is operating in authority albeit a false authority um, I mentioned already when we get to talking about these different aspects, like a leopard bear and whatever, this is a composite of Daniel 7 and a composite of the reality that um, this beast is operating in every sphere of influence around the world through kingdoms past and present. This beast was wounded, and this is important. Again, this wound is a real wound, and it's a fatal wound. If you want to do a little bit of additional reading, you can go back to Genesis 3. This beast was wounded fatally by Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. This empire power structure was fatally wounded through the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross, which is what God prophesied in Genesis 3, where he said, the serpent will strike his heel, but the serpent's head will be crushed under the heel of a coming savior. So this beast's wound is mortal, it is real, and he's given a false, a full resurrection. Again, it's very deceptive. He's given a false resurrection, a seeming total resurrection, but not the kind of resurrection that Jesus Christ himself had. And so this beast is described as being wounded fatally, which happened to the kingdom of darkness that weekend of the cross some 2,000 years ago. We'll just move on here really quickly. Again, this question that we need to ask ourselves in here is found in uh, verse four and, and a few other places because it is worship that the beast is looking for. And so John lays out this question, who do you worship? And I don't want you to think of worship as just being the songs we sing on Sunday. Here's how I want you to think of this question of worship is attention. Worship at its most basic level is attention. The question John is asking and the question we have to wrestle with is where is our attention? Where is your attention going in your life right now? What do you spend your time investing in, reflecting on, researching, Googling, scrolling, all of those other things? Worship is about attention. It's not about just singing songs. It's a great part of it. But what Jesus is asking us for in our life is undivided attention. And what we're confronted with by the beast by the beast who wants our attention. We're confronted with 150 different ways to distract our attention off of the way of the lamb onto the way of the beast. And once we give our attention to the beast, once we become a part of his ecosystem, it becomes very difficult to discern where we are and what's right and what's wrong and how we move forward, where Jesus is, where the enemy is, what do I do next? What do I do right now? It's very hard when our attention is on everything but the lamb. And one of the struggles I've had, and I want to say this again very gently, not as an accuser, but as one who's wrestled with you. One of the struggles I've had is that in the last two years, I found it very, very easy for all of my attention to be on COVID, on vaccination on freedom and rights and not on the lamb. See, there's nothing wrong with those conversations. But like I said earlier, like I said earlier, the enemy doesn't come in blatant, like, here I am. I'm, I'm here to destroy your life. He comes with things that are deceptively marked by, by similarities with Jesus. When we get into ideas of freedom and rights and liberties, they seem like gospel realities. But if you have your attention focused on the lamb, you'll recognize all through scripture, the heart of God is a humility and surrender of rights. The heart of the kingdom is a giving up, a surrender of our very lives. Paul says that we are slaves to Christ. The ultimate reality is not political freedom. But these things can be very tricky and deceptive. And I found in the last few years that it was very easy for my attention to be consumed by what was happening in the world around me and what may or could happen as the world moves forward, my attention was consumed. And as soon as that began to happen, I began to feel this pull away from the way of the Lamb. And so the question that we're being asked, this contrast that John is providing here is who do you worship? Where is your attention? And I want to just gently, but sort of forcefully, (laughs) I want to confront you in your life. I don't know what's going on in every area of your life. Of course not. But I want to just say that the heart of God, he's calling you back to attention on the lamb, not on the world. He's calling you to put your attention back onto the way of the Lamb, not onto whether your freedoms are imploding or going away or whether, you know, we have this right or that right. Those are important conversations that have their place. But he's calling you to give your attention to the Lamb. And as you do that, you will be confronted with, you'll be confronted with a desire to give your attention to everything else in life, to give your attention to building your financial security for your retirement, to give your attention to your work, to give your attention to your own physical needs, satisfying your sexual needs, to give your attention to your own body, to your own pleasure, to your own joy, to give your attention to 150 other things. And Jesus is saying, who will you worship? The more we give our attention to Jesus, the more we're able to discern the subtleties of the enemy of God and the tricks that he plays and the bait and switch that he offers us. You fight for this, Andrew. Fight for this, for, you know... Right now, you're frustrated with everything going on. Right now, you're, you're upset, and right now, you're worried about the future your kids will have. Fight for this right now. Boom, attention gone from Jesus. But I'm called to walk by faith and to put my trust in the shepherd of my life. I want to challenge you and just ask that question, where's your attention right now? This beast um, was given uh, a mouth to utter blasphemous words, allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, those numbers are symbolic, 42 months, three and a half years. Biblically, it's symbolic of periods of testing and trial on the earth. Let's move on because I know that we all want to get to a specific verse. Is anybody else hot in here? Is it just me? I need my, like, my hanky or something here. I'm... Thank you, James. Turn that down to 15, if you would. <laughs> I'm just kidding, my wife is literally going, no! Anyway, I'm still stressed out from having to do sound earlier. I don't know, I'm just sweating still from that. All right, let's keep going on. John, uh, John moves on. And again, this beast, both beasts are a fake, and imitation of Christ. There's a lot of interesting similarities. I'll run through a few. You can jot them down if you uh, can write quickly. Both uh, Christ and these beasts were slain. And both of them rise to new life. We can see that in Revelation 6.6 6 and 13.3. So the, again, these are, these are similarities that are being drawn and it's being drawn so that we recognize that deception is at the heart of the playbook of the enemy. And he's not just gonna show you his cards right out of the gate. So both the beasts and Jesus were slain. Both have followers with names on their foreheads. We can find this in different passages in Revelation. Both have horns. The lamb is said to have two horns. The second beast has two horns. Both have authority over every tribe. Again, this is a deception of the enemy. In one sense, yes, he is ruling on the earth and he has authority, but Jesus is the one that has authority over every tongue and tribe and nation. But these beasts are being presented in such a way that we would believe that they have ultimate authority over our lives, that we must submit to their leadership and rulership in our life, that it's futile to resist them. Both have authority. Both receive worldwide worship. We see this in five, eight to 14, 4, and three. Both have a final common end. With different outcomes so both these beasts and Christ have a final coming but the coming of Jesus is to establish in victory the kingdom of God the coming of the beasts in the end will be to fall under the judgment of God John goes on to say I want you to underline this same Words that he used earlier when talking to the seven churches let him who has an ear, let him hear. This is again a strong command to listen. It's the same exhortation given to the seven churches. And this is what John is doing, he's jolting his friends that he's writing these letters to, he's jolting them to wake up and see what's going around you. Wake up, get out of your religious slumber, get out of your religious routines and rut. Wake up, there's a reality going on on the earth today that you may not be able to see with your eyes or hear with your ears in the natural, but it's driving us toward these places. And either you're gonna get sucked into the kingdom of the beast or you're going to walk in the way of the lamb. And John is saying, listen to me. Stop playing church. Stop playing with God. Stop treating God like your bellhop to bless you with certain things in your life while you live in his grace to carry out your own desires in every other area. Stop pretending that God is just there to meet your needs and give you everything you want. Stop pretending that God's heart is just that you're happy all the time. Of course he wants you filled with joy but your happiness, my happiness, our freedom even is not God's primary concern. Following him in obedience and faithfulness is. So he's saying, wake up and see what's going on around you. Let him who has ears hear. We go down into verse 10, which seems like a really harsh, let anyone... uh, If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. What John is underscoring here comes from Jeremiah 15, but it also uh, underscores what Paul taught in Galatians, that you reap what you sow. Don't expect to sow a life of unfaithfulness to God and reap a life of his blessing. Don't expect to invest your attention into things that will actually destroy you and expect some different result. You and I, we reap what we sow. And John is acknowledging this. This is what Jesus is pointing out to him. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We go on to this second beast, which is again a composite. A composite, and this time, this beast... Seems to be, a, a, a lot of scholars, they, they believe that this beast is actually um, a symbol for religious power. Religious power that is connected to the state that ultimately is seeking to glorify its own ends. This second beast is characterized with some of the same things that characterized Moses and Elijah. He calls down fire from heaven. He has the power to do many miracles. Again, he's an imposter. He looks real. Everything on the surface looks like, well, who else could do that but God? But he's actually using religion. He's using devotion, and he's distorting it, and he's connecting devotion and the state together and say you've gotta actually follow both of these things to walk in the way of the lamb, but it's not true, it's a lie. The second beast is a parody of Jesus. We're later told that his role is as a false prophet. So his role is religious. The false prophet leads people to worship the state, In its systems. And John is saying there's false teachers, even in the church, who are calling you. Again, I'm going to be so careful here who are calling you to put your hope in government, who are calling you to pledge allegiance to a leader, who are calling you to confuse the role of the kingdom and the role of the state, who are calling you to conflate the two together, who are calling you to mix these things together in a way that actually doesn't glorify God. The second beast is at work today, and it's a complex and difficult Scenario to figure out what's up and what's down. And I've wrestled with these things too. What is our role in this? Is our role to run away and hide in the hills and just work on our personal devotion to Jesus? Is, or is our role to be you know, on the front lines, seeking political change and all of these things? And I think in honesty, it's a mixture of both. We're not called to just uh, you know, being in the world but not of it doesn't mean we run and hide into our areas of seclusion and remove ourselves from cultural life. That's not what the kingdom of God teaches. But we also have to be careful on the other side when our activism takes on a form of godliness but actually isn't filled with or led by the Spirit of God, when it looks close but is not the same substance behind it. And this is what John is challenging his friends with in as they live under the the boot of Rome, as they live in the midst of Domitian's persecution, as they come out of Nero's, you know, aggression against the church. He's saying, You've got to, you've got to know the Lamb because it's hard to figure out how to walk in this way. I want to challenge you again with this question: where is my attention? Second question to that is, where's my hope? Our hope is not in a political system or leader. I don't care who it is. Our hope is not into making any country Christian. The kingdom of God, Jesus said this so clearly to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. One day the kingdom of God will fill the whole earth. And we'll walk in the greatness of Jesus' rule on the earth. That's coming. But don't confuse our idea of kingdom and God's idea and assume that Jesus' goal is to make Christian nations. Jesus is not a nation builder, He's not building and attempting to build a theocracy. And so we have to be careful with how we walk some of these lines together. And I'm not, I'm not even suggesting I know all the answers. But as I follow the way of the lamb as best I can, he's pointing out to me along the way some traps that even I have been susceptible to fall into. I said it before and I still kind of think it's true. the primary purpose and heart of Jesus is not to form the Canadian government or the American one. It's not to make America great again. I'm not saying that in a slanderous way. I'm just saying that like, like let's be honest here. So much of our lives have historically We've struggled with how to, how to interact with political power. And this is the struggle that we get into, is that when we, when we get ourselves into a system where we conflate you know, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man together, and then begin to play by the same playbook as the world does in order to gain power and influence, we start running into trouble. And this is what we find all over the earth today and even in our context. What does it look like for you and I to walk in the way of the lamb and oppose the influence of these beasts? Let's move on to the section everybody's been waiting for the mark of the beast. Later on in chapter 13, it says this. All, also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. Okay, we we'll want to walk through this here. Um, what we see here, John is isolating three realities here. Related to this mark that he's talking about. There's a political reality, a religious reality, and an economic reality that are underlying this whole conversation here. What John is talking about here, I think, I've, I've done so much reading this week, and again, there's a wide variety of opinion, but uh, most scholars that I have been reading in the last number of weeks as it relates to this specifically, see this mark as symbolic, not literal. So remember back in Revelation 7, it says that the followers of Jesus were marked and sealed with the seal of the Holy Spirit, with the seal of God. You and I are told by Paul that we are sealed and marked by the Holy Spirit, but that's not a literal mark that you or I carry on our forehead or our hand. It's a symbolic uh, reference to the reality that we are owned by the kingdom of God. We are owned by Jesus. So this mark is symbolic. It's symbolic, and it could either mean uh, being symbolic of being branded as slaves. Who owns the future of your life? Are you marked by the kingdom and king, Jesus, or are you marked by the beast? Who has ownership in your life? That's the question here. It could also be a marking that soldiers or religious people had that would indicate their devoted, faithful people to that, whatever that cult was or whatever that religious order was. So this mark could either be an indication of, of being marked as a slave, like who are you a slave to? What system are you a slave to? Or who are you devoted to? Again, this comes back to worship. So this mark in my opinion, it's not a literal mark. It's not a microchip. It's not a tattoo on your forehead or your hand. And in fact, most scholars say if you're, if you're worried about the word mark, you've missed the point. The point is actually on where the mark is, which is on your forehead or your hand. The forehead in John's day and in John's writing, the forehead symbolized The forehead symbolized our perception of the world around us. It symbolized our ideological thinking, how we think and how we process, how we see the whole world around us. The forehead symbolized that. What what is the lens that you look at the world through? Is it the lens of the kingdom of the lamb or the kingdom of the dragon? The hand symbolized our behavior and actions how our thinking works itself out through our life and expresses itself in how we live and in what we choose and what we spend our energy and time on and how we behave. And so what John is drawing for us here is this contrast between having a a mindset that's framed by the kingdom of the lamb or the kingdom of the dragon and then having a behavioral life that's either framed by the values of the kingdom of the lamb or the values of the kingdom of the dragon. This mark is figurative. And the focus is on where John is saying the mark is placed. We see in the Old Testament that God told Israel that the Torah, their holy scriptures in the Old Testament, the Torah, and this is a quote, was to serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. So this is not totally weird and foreign language to John's friends and the readers of this in the first century. And the same thing that God was saying to the Israelites back then is that your, your whole view of life, the way you think about the world, the way you think about your own life needs to be shaped by me and my values and my purposes. And then not only that, because our faith is not just about what we intellectually agree with God on. Our faith is the expression then of that through our life. Are you thinking and living like the lamb? That's the question. Or are you thinking and living like the beast? So the forehead is ideological commitment, it's perception, it's a godless worldview, and it's thinking that's shaped by the beast, and the hand is our lifestyle. Our actions, our choices, behavior that is shaped by the beast or the lamb. One other point that's very important here, and this relates to this number 666, which is the number that represents a name. Name is the key thing here, not the number 666. The name in John's Day and in Hebrew culture, name represented identity and character. So here's the, here's the image. In your thinking and perception of the world, whose identity and character are you living by? Is your life and your thinking characterized by the nature of God and of the lamb or of the beast? Whose name is on your right hand Is your life, your actions and behaviors, is your lifestyle characterized by the nature and character of God or the character of the beast? That's what is being asked here. There have been so many speculations as to what 666 actually means. There's a way of uh, equating numbers uh, with letters in the Greek alphabet, It's called gematria, and you can use it in Greek and in Hebrew and in Latin. And so here's the problem. There's no definitive way to actually know if John was talking about a specific person or not. And literally, there have been hundreds of suggestions of who 666 is. A lot of people think John was relating that to Nero, but you have to spell Nero's name in a very specific way to arrive at 666. Some people have related that to Hitler and other people through history. Did you know, just for your information, Barney the Dragon is 666? (laughs) He literally is. That's why I never watched that show. I knew there was something wrong with Barney, right? The point is, Barney was great. No, he wasn't. Um, I love you, you. Anyway, I'm starting my career as a worship leader soon. All right. Um, The point is that if all of our attention, again, is focused on deciphering some code here and figuring out who John may have or may not have been talking about in the first century when he wrote or in every subsequent century or coming in the future, then we're missing the whole point of this. The whole point is whose name and character marks your life, how you see the world around you and what your lifestyle and behaviors are. Does your life, and this is, again, We've got, let's be honest and serious. Does your lifestyle look like the life of the lamb? Not for this hour and a half or three quarters on a Sunday morning, but tomorrow. Here's an even deeper question Does your lifestyle and your choices and your behavior when no one's looking look like the lamb? That's what John is asking. Where is your attention? And is your thinking and your behavior consistent with the heart and character of God or of the beast? John is probing at some very deep things. To have the name marked on the forehead or hand is to have the nature of the beast or the dragon in our worldview and our lifestyle and our behaviors. To be marked with the image of the beast is to embody the character of the beast. This is why I said this is deep discipleship because all throughout these passages John is talking about worship and attention. And then he says this thing here as we move through. I don't even have a chance to cover so much more of this. But he says it's the followers of the Lamb that follow him wherever he goes. John is talking not just about what you say you believe, but how you follow in faithful obedience to Jesus. And I have a question for you. It's the same one that I've been asking of myself this week in in reflection of this. Are you following the lamb wherever he goes as he probes into your own life? The places that he wants to walk in your life, are you following him there? Are you following the Lamb as He confronts behaviors and patterns and perspectives and worldviews and things? Are you following the Lamb into those places? See, the people in Revelation who were faithful were ones who were willing to allow the Lamb to set the direction and the character and the behavior of their lives. If you're like me, there may be many parts of your life that you don't want the influence of the lamb. There are many parts of your thinking, even as it relates to the world around us right now, where you actually don't want the influence of the lamb. You want to believe what you want to believe and you want to do what you want to do. You want to go where you want to go. You want to make the choices you want to make. You want to, to, to value the things you want to value. And God is asking this question of you and I, where is our attention? And are you willing to follow the lamb into areas of your own life that may actually confront How you spend your time, what you're watching, where you're going, what you're saying, what you're thinking, how you're living. That's the question that is before us here as we work through this. Why don't you just stand with me for a moment? There's so, oh man, there's so much more in here. Maybe we should just continue through the rest of August. I don't know, but. So the followers of the lamb in here are characterized, you know, that John uses this description that that they were virgins. That's not literal. He doesn't mean that, you know, everybody following Jesus has to be a male virgin. That's not what he was saying. What he was saying is that the followers of Jesus are characterized by purity and the holiness of God working itself out in their lives. That the things that are going on in their heart, the things that Jesus is asking them to confront and to work with, that there is purity and holiness that characterizes their inner and outer life. And that purity and holiness turns into faithfulness and obedience. why don't you just close your eyes and I just have a few questions to ask us as we just land the plane here. I'm just gonna invite you, Holy Spirit. You can do a way better job of this than I can. I just wanna invite you for each person present under the sound of my voice, I invite you to come with the fullness of the love and grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And I ask that you would expose areas of our life where our attention has been drawn away from the lamb and is on other things. Whether it be the cares of this world or the things happening all over the place around us or our financial realities, whatever it is, I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction to us. Where are the areas of our life where our attention has been diverted from the lamb? And if a specific thing comes to mind, a specific area of your life comes to mind, I I just want to invite you even right here in this spot to just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for giving this area over in my life. Jesus, I just, I repent from that. And I ask that you'd show me how to draw my attention back to you in this area. Just as you're with Jesus, I want you to ask a second question. Jesus, are there areas of my inner life or my behavioral life, my lifestyle that have grieved you or quenched you? And just if things come to mind that you feel have grieved the heart of God, I just, I want to invite you right here and right now to just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for grieving you with this. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you'd wash me, cleanse me with your blood. I ask that you would renew me and restore me. I ask that you would teach me to walk in holiness and impurity. And the last question, Jesus, are there areas that you have been leading in my life where I've been refusing to go? Have you been leading me toward things that I have been actually refusing to walk with you in? I'm just going to ask Holy Spirit that you would just bring to mind any areas of our life where we are not following the lamb wherever he goes, where we are resisting the way of the lamb. And if anything comes to mind, anything at all, I want to just encourage you to just again say, Jesus, I I repent for following my own way and not walking in the way of the Lamb. And I ask Jesus, Holy Spirit, that you would stir up faith in us again today and trust enough in Jesus that we would be willing to follow his leadership in every area of our life, that we would follow the lamb wherever he goes, no matter what he's wanting to confront in us, no matter what he's wanting to correct or what he's wanting to put his finger on, no matter what he's asking us to lay down and to walk away from, no matter what it is, Father, I pray, Pray that you would provoke us with greater measures of faith and trust in Jesus to be able to follow the lamb wherever he goes in every part of our life. And I just ask for your wisdom. To Would you teach us how to walk in these days that are filled with so much struggle and trial, that are filled with so much craziness going on everywhere. Teach us to walk faithfully with Jesus. I pray, Father, that this church would be a church that has its attention on you, Jesus not on everything going on around us, that this church would be marked by the character and the name of the lamb that's on our forehead and on our hand, that our behavior and our practice and our activity and our actions would be marked by the character of the one we say we follow, that the lamb would lead us and that we even as a church that we would be willing to follow him wherever he goes, that we would be willing to pay any sacrifice to make any decision to step out in any measure of faith in order to follow the lamb where he goes father i pray that as we do that that your kingdom would come in our church and in the families in our church that restoration would flow like a river that the healing presence of jesus would be manifest father that our region and that our 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 neighbors even that line this property that the kingdom of God would be expressed here in such a way that it would shake the spiritual principalities and heavenly places that have bound and chained and tormented even our neighbors. We ask that you would mark us as that kind of church and that kind of people who follow the lamb wherever he goes and are characterized in our thinking and in our speaking and in our behaving and in our lifestyle are characterized by the way of the lamb and not the way of the beasts or of the dragon. Give us discernment, Holy Spirit, to sort out the two in different areas of our life, I pray. Amen. All right, if you are still with us, congratulations. (laughs) Uh, Lots there that I would love to unpack and bring more clarity to, maybe express a little bit differently or better. Um, And like I said, this is a podcast, I've mentioned this before, so I'm gonna take my time here a little bit. If you wanna turn it off, go for it. Uh, I hope you don't, but um, I'm gonna get into some of the, Uh, more politically charged, I guess, statements I made and try and bring some clarity and nuance and specific sort of what I meant by some of that here Uh, because it was overly general and broad and could have come across in a way that I didn't really intend it to. So uh, before I get to that, though, one thing I totally forgot was to just talk about why John may have used specifically the numbers 666. I mentioned in my message that um, I take the mark of the beast to be figurative and symbolic. I kind of talked you through that. We don't need to cover that again. But why 666 specifically? What's the significance there? Um, I want to just present to you uh, one concept or idea. Um, There are a few floating out there, but Uh, numbers meant something uh, and they meant more in John's day and culture than they do in ours, in our Western North American sort of culture. Numbers don't really carry a lot of meaning or significance, but the number seven uh, carried great significance. Seven was a number that indicated perfection and completeness, um, total um, purity, and that is often associated with God. Seven is often associated with God. The number six in contrast to that is the number of man and incompleteness. It's a number um, that falls short of the perfection and completeness of seven. And putting something in a grouping of three, three was a number for completion as well in John's uh, culture and in his setting. And so I think, uh, at least in part, what John is communicating with the 666 is um, this idea of, of complete incompleteness, like a total incompleteness, total falling short of the standard of God, total um, uh, falling short of everything that God would represent. And um, so I think that that's kind of what is behind, at least in part, what is behind the number 666. It is kind of a statement of John's that um, the way of the beast is totally and utterly and completely uh, insufficient and broken. And it does not compare to the way of the Lamb and the kingdom of God. And so I just think uh, I wanted to leave that with you. Now, back to some of the political um, things I mentioned. And um, uh, one specifically that I want to unpack and clarify, I think I said something to the effect that God is not predominantly concerned with Christian nations, with making Canada great, as a nation or America or any other nation. And I I need to clarify that because I've actually had some great conversations with people since, and I think there's uh, a need for me to clarify that. So uh, what I was not meaning by that uh, is I did not mean that Christians should be completely uninvolved in the political sphere. I was not meaning to imply that God does not care about politics. I was not meaning to imply that Christians should live in caves and be totally cut off from society and not engage with it. I do believe that we should vote. We have the privilege in our democratic Uh, countries, uh, Canada, United States, many European countries, we have the privilege and honor to vote. I believe as Christians, we should exercise those privileges and rights that were given to vote. I believe that Christians, if they're called to it, should get involved in a politics. Christians, I believe, should run for public office. I believe if you are a follower of Jesus and you have a great passion for politics or a calling for public leadership in the political sphere that you should follow that. I would never want to imply that I don't think those are important things at all. Um, I think it's actually amazing when followers of Jesus uh, are, are fortunate enough to sit in a public office in different seats. And I think it's amazing when those followers of Jesus bring godly character and conviction into their office, into the legislation that they are writing and that they are voting on and that they are are working to implement. I think that's actually amazing. So and when I said I don't think God is primarily concerned um, with Christian Nations. I was not referring to, I didn't mean that he doesn't care about his presence and his kingdom being expressed in the political uh, realms, the political sort of spheres of influence that are found all over the place. I also did not mean by that statement um, that God does not care about how many people in a nation are followers of Jesus. What I did not mean to imply, and I'm sorry if you took it this way, it was not my intention. I did not mean to imply that God could care less about um, people coming to know him in a nation or um, his kingdom advancing. I believe wholeheartedly that his desire in his heart is that his kingdom would continue to advance on the earth. And so uh, what I maybe gave the impression of, um, which I wouldn't want to, I'm not, I don't have some kind of fatalistic view that, um, you know, that as Christians, we're just supposed to kind of hunker down and, take a beating and wait for the end to come and hopefully you know everything is good in the end that's not i believe that we are called to express and to carry the kingdom of god with us on the earth and that that um, by its very nature means an expansion and growth of the way of the lamb of the kingdom of god in our nations and so i don't i i don't believe that as christians we are supposed to just hide and cower in the corner and, um, and not be present and actually bringing the, the life of Jesus and his kingdom to our neighborhoods and our streets, our public squares and those areas. Um, God does want his kingdom to come on the earth and I fully believe that uh, and that manifests itself in, in many different ways. God does also want more and more people to come to know him. He wants to fill the nations with his presence. Um, You know, Peter says God doesn't want anyone to perish uh, without knowing him. And so um, I don't want to leave you with this idea that maybe, um, you know, I think that things are just uh, so hopeless and dreadful that we... Uh, need to just sort of retreat into our little caves and and wait out the storm. God wants more and more people in Canada, in uh, the countries, the nations of the world to experience the renewal and revival that come through his spirit. And so I wanted to just clarify that. What I do mean by that statement then, okay? So those are the things that I don't mean. I hope... Hopefully that helps to clarify a few things. What I do mean is that I believe God wants to bring renewal and revival in the heart first and have governance flow out of that. So let me say it a different way. I believe that God wants to ignite um, a hunger and longing for Jesus in the heart of mankind and that as we love our, the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, that that then becomes expressed in the life of our nation in an increasing measure. Um, I don't think that the wisest or best or biblical road forward is to simply think that we can legislate godliness into our nations. And that's kind of what I was meaning by God is not and in, like interested in a Christian nation. He's not interested in us just passing uh, laws that fit into our, Um, Christian moral um, codec. He's not, I don't think that that's what he would want. I think that's the opposite. It's the inverse of how he would want to uh, pour out renewal and revival on a nation. And so um, what I meant by that was, by that statement in the message was, um, just because you pass laws that may reflect a Judeo-Christian worldview and value system, that does not mean that, um, that the country itself is um, Christian. It doesn't mean that the... Uh, that culture is going to experience a renewal, a revival of the kingdom of God. And so that's sort of the contrast that I was meaning. I also would say um, that in this conversation, what's super important for me is the how in the, in the, in the whole a dynamic in the conversation. I, another way to say that is the end right? So a, uh, like more, more legislation and laws that hold a Judeo-Christian moral ethic and worldview, the end does not justify the means. I think as Christians, one of the things that, you know, I want to bring some, some contrast to and confrontation to is the how is vitally important. And one of the I think the checks and balances coming through the book of Revelation is that contrast between the way, the how, the way of the lamb and the way of the dragon. And so if we're passing legislation, if we're trying to make our country more Christian, but the vehicle through which that's coming is anger and vitriol is... um, is abusive, is authoritarian, is power hungry. Um, if we're looking the other way as it relates to people's character and uh, their conduct, in the contents of their heart and their behavior, and their uh, uh, like, I I think that that's dangerous, and we need to be careful and guarded with that. And I I'm sure that you would agree with that. So that's again where this concept of that mark um, on the forehead and on the hand, not just an ideological position that um, we hold as followers of Jesus, not just sort of ideological, ethical convictions, but of being marked on our hand, our behaviors and our lifestyle and the way that that is expressed in how we talk and treat people Um, the way that we uh, follow Jesus in humility and surrender and uh, in peace. And these things are vitally important. And so I just, I want to leave that uh, with you. I hope that that uh, clarifies what I was meaning by that and, and, uh, the other thing I didn't mention is in, in John's specific context, the, around 96 AD when he's writing this, um, he's writing to his friends in these seven churches in uh, what is modern day Turkey. They are Christians living within uh, the Roman Empire, but they're they're kind of caught between these two powerful forces. the one would be the Roman Empire that's demanding they hail Caesar and declare Caesar Lord, that is demanding that they give honor to the Pantheon of gods and um, they and and, um, and sort of reject the lordship of Christ in that way. And then this other powerful force was, was Judaism. And um, Judaism had a protected uh, position in Roman life. So it was actually a protected religion. And so there would have been this great tension and this great pull not to compromise with the state, but also not to compromise with, a legal state religious entity that itself was asking, um, you know, followers of Judaism in their synagogues and whatnot, it, it was demanding that they um, not acknowledge the, the full work of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. Um, and so that's part of the tension that was going on in Paul's day. And again, Christians in Paul's day had no, absolutely no political influence. They had no military power and they had no cultural favor. And yet through uh, the renewing work of the spirit, the kingdom of God expressing itself in their hearts and in their lives and in their communities, um, they brought the nation of Rome down. Um, Not because they had military might and power, not because they were louder, not because they had people in seats of power in government or not because they had extremely wealthy and influential, um, you know, people that were, uh, you know, uh, tapping on the shoulders of political leaders, but because of the subversive nature of the way of the lamb in contrast to the way of the dragon. And so... I I wanted to just clarify some of that contextual reality that they were facing at that time and this again this mark of the beast touches three central areas of life and John references these in chapter 13. Uh, It references political realities, religious realities and economic realities and so I, I I celebrate, uh, one, I'm super thankful that I live in Canada. Two, I celebrate um, men and women who are followers of Jesus, who feel compelled and passionate and called uh, to be a part of public office. I, I celebrate when those men and women are voting with their conscience, are voting with their Christian ethic in place. I celebrate the legislation that they're putting forward, that is a uh, representative of a biblical, uh, godly um, nature. I totally celebrate that. I believe that the kingdom of God is meant to grow and expand in our nations. And I believe that God wants to see that grow even further in our life. What I want to just kind of draw for us um, in contrast to that is, Is that happening in the way of the lamb? Humility, surrender, servanthood. It doesn't mean we be a a, a doormat. It doesn't mean we go hide in the woods. But are we carrying the way of the lamb or the way of the dragon? And I think that that's a fair question for us all to ask. So thanks for uh, sticking in with us through this. I hope that helped a little bit. and uh, clarifies a few things for you. Connect in with us for our next installment of this. We are covering, now we're going to make up a bit of time, chapters 14, 15, and 16 next week. See you then.